100 fires burning out of control across California. slams into the Gulf Coast overnight. Why are things so broken? Broken, 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 broken. Why does evil happen? God, why am I broken? Why does everyone hate it's me? Enough. God, we do this injustice still. Why is the world unfair? Why is the world the way it is? Am I beautiful? Why should I have hope? Why do disasters occur? Why is the world unfair? Why does it happen? This isn't how things are supposed to be. My name's Colin. If we've never had the chance to meet before, I lead uh, United, our young and old ministry here. And so my wife, Emily, and I, we love being part of the young and old community here. It is a blast. We are so looking forward to all the spike ball and volleyball and cookouts and bonfires that are going to be happening this summer. So if you're in this room and you're not yet connected to a community and you're a young adult, I'd love to help you do that. Uh, but today, I'm really excited that we get to be together uh, to continue this series that we started last week called Broken. And so Pastor Kevin, he introduced us to this series last week, and he kind of introduced us to the main idea that we're processing through together as we walk through it. And here's the main idea, uh, that this world is not how it should be, right? That it's broken. Uh, And I'm pretty sure I don't have to convince any of you in this room right now that this is a reality, right? I think we can all kind of agree with this, You know, whether it's taking a look at our news feed or uh, in the community around us, or like Kevin was saying, just uh, maybe even in some of our own lives, it's hard to deny the fact that this world is not how it should be, that it's broken, that pain and suffering and brokenness pervades the world we live in, right? And there's all sorts of ways we kind of try to process through and understand the brokenness in our world. But I think the Bible is actually going to give us just a really uh, insightful and helpful picture of what that brokenness actually looks like. And so Pastor Kevin, he kind of introduced to us to that last week by giving us an overview of kind of the beginning of the story, the beginning of the story of the Bible in the, uh, in the book of Genesis. And so just to give you a summary of what we talked about, in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw the creation story, uh, what God did in the beginning. And man, what God did was good. There was a lot of good in the beginning. So in the beginning, there was, there was blessing. And there was abundance. Humanity was given this purpose uh, that, to partner with God in. There was rest and joy. There was selflessness, singing, no shame. And ultimately, like, there was life. There was flourishing. And again and again, through the first couple chapters of the Bible, it's repeated. It, it was good. It is good. The world that God created is good. And man, th- this world here that we, like, describe, like, this is the world we long to live in. But uh, as the story goes, and as maybe most of you guys know, uh, it doesn't last very long. Just one page later, the very next chapter in Genesis 3, uh, some things change. And in Genesis 3, we get cursing, and we get scarcity, and we get that purpose that humanity had being broken and frustrated. We get fruitless labor, 
fear, self-preservation, accusation, shame, and ultimately death enters into the picture. And I think when we look at these two lists, uh, at times we see glimmers of this list over here, right, in our world. Like we see glimmers of the good world that God created. But most of the time, I I think probably the more accurate list that we have here is this one of our world, that our world is broken. I just think the Bible gives us such a uh, helpful picture of what that is. And again, I don't think any of us would disagree. I don't think anybody disagrees with the fact that there's something wrong, that, that, that the world is broken. The place of disagreement comes in when we ask the question, well, how do we fix the brokenness, right? Like, what are we actually supposed to do about it? What do we do with it? How do we get back to the goodness and the life and the health that was there at the beginning of the story? And when we ask this question, man, there's all sorts of disagreement, right? There's all sorts of responses and ideas and opinions about what to do with this. And so today, rather than sort through all those uh, different opinions and ideas of how to deal and fix the brokenness in the world, I thought maybe what we need to focus on is asking the question, well, what is at the heart of it? Like, what is the fundamental issue that causes all the brokenness we see today? What is the primary problem that leads to this broken world? What is the root or the source that all the brokenness we see, where does it come from? And I think that, I think that question is so important because as we're able to identify the, the primary uh, and the fundamental issue, well, then we're gonna be able to start to talk about a solution. The more clarity we can gain on what actually went wrong, the more clarity we're gonna have for what does the solution look like and how do we be a part of that, right? In the Bible, it actually begins to identify this fundamental issue right here in Genesis 3. And so that's where I want to start today, actually. Uh, You guys can find your way to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. It's going to be a little bit harder than last week when we were on page 1. We're on page 2 this week. But I trust you guys can get there. And so we'll be starting here. um, And basically what I want to do uh, is take a look here. But I want to get an overview of what the Bible has to say about this fundamental issue, about the solution to it, and then about our part in that solution. It's kind of what we're gonna be looking at today. But we'll be starting here. And so hopefully you guys had a chance to find your way to page two. And so here it is. I'm just gonna read through Genesis 3, one through six. It starts and it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And so this passage here, this one that we just read, this is what connects all the goodness and life and flourishing at the beginning of the story with all the brokenness that we're gonna see in chapter three. And so so what happened here? What exactly happened here? Well, it starts by telling us, apparently a serpent shows up and starts to talk to the man and the woman, which is weird, right? It's weird. But the original audience, they would have understood that this serpent, uh, back in that time, it was a common image for a spiritual being. So apparently, this this spiritual being that is in rebellion against God shows up, 
And what does he do? He begins to start to twist the words of God. He says, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Not a, is that what God said? Not a single tree, right? And if we were to go back and actually read what God said in chapter two, that is like the exact opposite of what he said. God commands the man and the woman, eat, enjoy all the trees, enjoy this creation that I created for you. Everything except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the woman, she tries to correct the serpent, uh, but then the serpent comes back with another lie, an, a more outright and blatant lie. He says, no, no, you will not certainly die. The serpent says, no, when you eat from this tree, you're not, death isn't gonna enter into the equation. You'll be like God then, knowing good and evil. And so what's going on here? Why, why is there so much focus? Why is this tree such a big deal, apparently? I think sometimes it's easy to look at the tree and think that all that, and the commandment not to eat of it, and think that all that it is is like this arbitrary rule. Man, it is so much more than that. What God is doing with this tree is God is inviting humanity into a trusting relationship with him. He's inviting them to trust him, to trust his definition of good and evil, of healthy and broken, of right and wrong. That God is looking to humanity saying, I want to be in a relationship with you where you trust me and we can work in this world together. And so this tree, it is, it is not just about a rule, but a relationship with the author of life. And so what the serpent is doing here is he's not just tempting them to break some arbitrary rule or law. He is tempting them to break this relationship with the one who gave them life, with the one who created that amazingly good world in the beginning. This tree, it represents this, this decision to break trust with God and to find life and goodness apart from him. It represents that. That they wanted, the eating of this fruit, it means that they wanted to be God, determining what's good and evil for themselves. I really like the way Bible scholar Tim Mackey puts it. He talks about these verses. He says, God's offer was for humans to image or reflect God when they trust his definition of good and evil. But the serpent's distortion was that humans become gods when they define good and evil for themselves. And so here what we see is not just a broken rule, but this broken relationship with the author of life. Humanity is going to determine, or they're going to decide to seize autonomy for themselves and try to find life apart from God. God says the way to life, the way to goodness and health is to trust me. And the serpent said, no, no, the, the way to life is to trust yourself. And humanity goes its own way, right? They choose to try to find life apart from God. And that temptation to do that and that decision is not just available and was made by the original humans. It's actually really the story of the Old Testament, kind of that first part of our Bibles. It's about God's people continuing to try to find life, joy, meaning, significance, apart from their creator, apart from God. And so they not only do this by breaking commandments and laws that God gives them, but even more so, they, they continue to reject this relationship that God is extending to them. And so Israel, uh, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, uh, kind of one of their biggest problems that's gonna continue to repeat all throughout the story is that of idolatry. It's idolatry. And so what idolatry is, it's basically creating these little man-made figures that represent these 
foreign gods, these other gods. And, and they would come to these things and worship them in hopes that they would provide them security and protection and significance. Essentially, they were going to these things to find life. And so not only were they rejecting the one true God, they, they were turning to these other things, these false gods, and worshiping them. And again and again, God's people are going to try to find and seek life apart from him. And the Bible is going to point to that this is kind of the main problem that's causing all the brokenness, right? And so we might ask the question, well, how does that actually work? Because it's easy to say that, you know, rejecting, the, the problem is that we've rejected God and that causes all the brokenness. But, but how does that actually kind of work? Because as I said, as we're able to gain clarity on this fundamental issue, well, then we're going to be able to start to talk about a solution. And so let me, let me see if I can explain it this way. Uh, when I was 13 years old, I got certified as a scuba diver. And I have an embarrassing photo to prove it. There it is. There's 13-year-old Colin. Uh, and my, my face pretty much looks the same 13 years later. But that's, you know, whatever. So um, this guy, this guy got certified. This is him at his test. And uh, part of his scuba diving training was that I learned the importance of having a scuba diving partner. All right? And that was important because it turns out the ocean, pretty dangerous place. Right? So when you're swimming around and there's sharks or unseen obstacles, you kind of needed that partner to be able to watch your back, watch for your surroundings. But not only that, uh, when you're 50 plus feet underwater, your only source of air is your scuba diving tank and your self-contained underwater breathing apparatus or your scuba device, right? That's what that stands for. And all that is, it's just this little mouthpiece breathing thing, right? This is the thing, right? And so if this thing stops working or if you're not paying attention to your air reserves and you, and you run out of air, you're pretty much toast. This is the only thing that is keeping you alive down there, right? This is your source of life. And so the idea was that you needed a partner in case that did happen, you could share theirs. They trained us and they said, if you're underwater and all of a sudden, you know, you can't breathe, you're supposed to calmly swim over to your partner, let them know somehow underwater that you can't breathe, and then pass back and forth their scuba device as you calmly and safely swim to the surface. And so that was kind of our training. But I remember being 13 years old and thinking like, yeah, I don't know if that's how that's going to work, actually, right? Because if, if I'm 50 plus feet underwater, like swimming around sunken ships and coral reefs, and all of a sudden I can't breathe, like I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to maintain calm. It's much more likely I'm probably going to swim to my partner, rip that thing out of their mouth until I can breathe again. You know, I, like that's what, that's what, that'd be at least my natural instinct, right? Because when I lose the only thing that is keeping me alive, desperation is going to set in, Right? And when I lose my source of life, I'm going to exploit others for theirs. I'm going to do whatever it takes to survive in that moment. And I think that idea is exactly what the Bible is saying is this problem. That, man, when we, when we made a decision to do life apart from God, we lost our source of life. Instead of walking in this trusting relationship with the God of the universe, the one who gives us life, and we've rejected him, and we've chose to look to, for life apart from him. And so we, we run to these other things that we're hoping will give us life or significance or meaning. But the problem is, they don't. There isn't any, right? There's no life, true life, apart from God. And so all we find is scarcity. And as that scarcity sets in, so does desperation, 
And as that desperation sets in, we begin to exploit others, right? And because we don't have a source of life in God, then we become life takers instead of life givers. Then when we lost the thing that was keeping us alive, we begin to exploit others for our gain, to take from them, leading to all the brokenness we see in today's world. This is the condition. This is what we do. You know, I think it's easy sometimes to look at Israel and to look at them worshiping these, these you know, man-made idols and think, how stupid is that, right? Like, like how, how stupid would it be to, to place your hopes and your dreams in these little man-made figurines? How foolish would it be to find life and meaning and significance in something of your own making? But man, do we not do the same thing? Don't all of us, myself included, do the exact same thing? Don't we place our hopes and our dreams in something like our careers, or money, or success, or achievement? That when I achieve that thing, then, then I'll be fulfilled. Don't, don't we look for life and meaning and purpose in relationships, in our marriage, in our families? Don't we let those things define us at our core? We all do this, right? This, this, is, this is kind of the human condition. This is just what we do. Think about it. Think about this question. And what is the thing in your life that if it was taken away, you wouldn't just be upset, but destroyed? That life couldn't go on anymore? That it would be over? Or you can think about it this way. Uh, so when I was an engineer, part of my job was determining which walls in a building were non-load-bearing walls and load-bearing walls. And so really the difference was like a load-bearing wall, it carried the weight of the building. It supported the building. But a non-load-bearing wall, its kind of primary function was to like separate the rooms. It, w- it was purely architectural and it didn't actually carry any weight. And it was important to know the difference because if you take out, take out like a non-load-bearing wall out of a building, it would certainly change the building. Like it would, it would change the way the room's shaped. It would change the floor layout. But the building would stay intact. However, if you took out a load-bearing wall and you didn't support it, the whole building is going to come down. And I think you can think of it this way. Idols are the load-bearing walls in our life. It's not just that our lives would look different without them. It's that our lives would completely collapse without them, right? That life couldn't go on. And the Bible is going to say that humanity, what we do, is we continually try to support our life on things other than the author of life. Things other than God. We're constantly running to these things to bear the weight of our lives, Have you guys ever wondered why sometimes there is so much anxiety and desperation that surrounds some of these things in our life? That, man, if our vision for our our, our careers or our retirement or our family or our health and comfort or whatever it is, if those things get threatened or they're in danger, it cripples us. And I, I think that's because if we were being honest, whether we admit it or not, we are looking to that idol to give us life and to answer the deepest questions within us and to fill something deep within us, to give us joy and significance and purpose 
But the issue is, they don't measure up. They don't do the job at the end of the day. And so rather than enjoy these things and give our lives to them, man, we exploit them. Instead of being life givers as God intended, we become life takers. And when we are attempting to find our life in these things apart from God, we have nothing left to give the world. And the world becomes such a broken place because there's billions of people running around whose main concern is how do I get life for myself? Or how do I preserve and keep the life that I have? That it's all about us, right? And the Bible is going to tell us again, this is the foundational issue that we have been disconnected from the author of life and we have lost our source of life. And not only is that the problem in the Old Testament, but the New Testament's gonna say the same thing. The New Testament's gonna say things like this. As for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in your rebellion against the creator. And we, we were without hope and without God in the world that we were alienated, we were separate from the author of life. Man, and if that's the case, if that is true, if, if this is our condition, if this is our problem, then think about what that reveals about the solution. It can't be politics. Man, a, a new government or a new president can do nothing to bear the weight of your soul. Man, it can't be self-help. It's not some tips or tricks to how to better have a better life. You can't help yourself if your condition is that you're dead. You need a resurrection. And it can't be law or more religion. You know, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were the, some of the most devoted to obeying the law and religion. Yet Jesus would look at them and he would say, you guys are like walking tombs. Just death. There's, there's no life. And man, the reality is we need a source of life and that there is nothing we can do within ourselves to find it. We can't do it. Maybe you're in this room and maybe, maybe that's your story. Maybe your story is I have tried my whole life to find life apart from God, apart from him. You know, whether it was your career or, or your family, or relationships, or sex, or drugs, or whatever it is, you've pursued those things, and at the end of the day, emptiness is all there is. Death, no, no life. Well, if that's you, I gotta tell you, the Bible doesn't end there. It actually has some, some really good news for us. It has some really good news, because the Bible is gonna tell us that, man, Jesus came to give us that Jesus came to this earth to give us life, the thing we needed most. That's what he came to do. <laughs> That's the solution. And in the New Testament, in the, uh, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, it records for us this famous conversation. You, might, you guys might have heard of it before. It's with Jesus and the woman at the well. And during the course of this conversation, it's revealed that this woman, she's had five failed marriages. <laughs> And the man she's currently living with is in this sinful, broken relationship. And so this woman's constant 
looking for life and meaning and significance in relationships has led to just brokenness in our life. But man, rather than Jesus shame this woman, rather than her avoid this woman, he approaches her. And he begins to point out her physical need for water and begins to teach her about her real spiritual need. Look at what Jesus says to her as they're drawing water. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus says, you're going to this well for water, but you're speaking to the one who can give you living water. What is that? What what is living water? Well, Jesus goes on to tell us. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, in the same way that you have to come back to this well again and again and are never satisfied, that is the exact same picture of us trying to find life apart from God. Jesus says, you have correctly recognized your need, but she has gone to the wrong source. But Jesus tells her the good news. Man, those who drink of the water that he offers, they will never thirst. They'll be completely satisfied, totally fulfilled, entirely enough. That's what Jesus is saying. And what he's doing here is he's explaining the good news of the gospel. Man, that every single one of us, we have all rebelled. We have sinned against our creator, the author of life. Every one of us has chosen to try to find life apart from the giver of life. And because of that, we've lost our source of life. We have become life takers in this world, leading to all the brokenness that we see. But man, even though, even though every one of us has rejected God, and even though every one of us chooses to take life from others, man, God came to this earth to give us life. He came to this earth in Jesus to give his life on the cross for us, for our rebellion against him. And now through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can be reconnected to the one who we needed most, to God, a true source of life. I think what Jesus is revealing is that before we try to be part of the solution to the brokenness in the world, we need to get a relationship with our creator, right? The man, it starts with Jesus. It starts with him, finding our life in him. And the incredible thing is, it doesn't just stop there. Because look at what Jesus said. Jesus says that when we do that, when we, when we take the water that he offers, it becomes in us a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. That not only do we receive life from God, but life begins to flow out of us. What is he saying there? What is he referring to? Well, Jesus would go on a couple chapters later to explain it. In John 7, he would say, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. That whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. That God not only came to this world to give his life on a cross, but he gave his life to live within us. 
that Jesus died on the cross, but he rose again, and he sent his Holy Spirit to fill those who would come to him for life. And now, by the Spirit, we are able to live as life givers. We're able to serve and love and bless people the way that God intended us to live, because now we have been reconnected to the one we need most. And that leads me to this last thing, that our fundamental issue is that we need a source of life, that Jesus came to give us life, but now that he, he invites us to be part of this solution. And he invites us into this incredible thing that he is doing in the world. We could be part of it. <laughs> and if the root cause of all the brokenness is that, that people have been disconnected from God, the author of life, think about what that reveals about our part in the solution. I think it tells us that the way we participate in the solution is by pointing people to the true solution, Jesus. That man, it is all about him because life is found in him. And so this is exactly actually what this guy, uh, this psychologist, Robert Woodbury, this is exactly what he found. So this, this is so crazy. So this guy, he, Robert Woodbury, he published an article in the American Political Science Review called The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. And basically his aim was to investigate what effect missionaries, or kind of like people sent out in the name of Jesus, what effect do they have on the health of a nation? Or in other words, it's all this stuff we're talking about today. Like how are they actually contributing to being part of the solution? Are they making a difference? And what he found after investigating years of their work all across the world is absolutely crazy. This is so cool. This, this is his main takeaway from his investigation. The work of missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of a nation. That's what he found. He says that where missionaries had a significant presence in the past, these places were more economically developed with comparatively better health lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, and higher educational attainment, especially for women. Essentially, they were doing better in all areas of life. Like it was working, right? Like the solution was working. But then he makes this very important distinction. He says that this was only true in the case of conversionary Protestants, is what he said. And so what's that? What is a conversionary Protestant? Well, essentially, it's a word that he made up and what he was trying to say, what he was trying to explain, was that, that all these positive outcomes, they didn't come from missionaries whose main focus was just to bring better health care, or better education, or political reform. Those weren't the ones that were making the difference. Conversionary Protestants were the ones whose main focus was bringing the message of Jesus, that apart from him, there is no life but that God has sent Jesus to this world to give us life, that their main focus was bringing the gospel. And all those, these missionaries, they opposed the unjust practices that were happening in these countries that was leading to all the brokenness. Like, they weren't for those things, but they didn't necessarily set out to be like these political activists. Robert Woodbury would say all these positive outcomes, they seem somewhat unintended, and what's crazy about that is it shows us how this solution actually plays itself out, how the gospel works. They mean, these missionaries, they didn't set out necessarily to change society. They set out to tell people about Jesus. 
But when they told people about Jesus, that life is found in him, it changed society. That when people got hooked up to the, to the real thing, to the real source of life in God, the brokenness began to heal. And people began to give their life to the world rather than take from it when they were walking with Jesus. And man, I, I think this tells us that everything that the church does must be about pointing people to Jesus, that he is the one, that all our serving and sacrificing and giving that God calls us to, that the church does, it's not so much about healing people as it is about pointing them to the one who can truly heal, about pointing them to Jesus, that the life that he has given us, that he calls us to pour out for others, it's supposed to point people back to him, to the true source of life in him, that our part in the solution must focus on bringing the good news about Jesus to this broken world. And that is exactly what the New Testament's gonna tell us. I, I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. It's just this awesome passage about this whole idea. He says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so again, the New Testament's gonna tell us the same story that the old did. The man, even though we've all walked away from the author of life, he has taken the initiative to reconcile us to himself, to send Jesus to die for our sins so we could be reconnected to God. But not only that, he hasn't stopped there. He has also given us the ministry of reconciliation. That now we get to be a part of what God is doing in the world. That even though it is, that, that he is the one who is reconciling and saving the world to himself, that he wants to do it through us. It's, it's as if God were making his appeal to the world through us. That he's inviting us in, just like he did at the beginning, to walk with him in trust and to point people to what they need most, Jesus. And so, you know, we can, we can contribute to the solution in a lot of different ways, but man, we cannot lose sight of telling people about Jesus because what the world needs most is him. So as I close down and invite the band up, uh, I wanna speak to those of you in this room who might be investigating that, investigating this whole Jesus thing. You know, maybe you responded to Tony's challenge a couple weeks ago at Easter about coming back through this series. And I just gotta tell you, thank you so much for being here. Like, thank you. And thank you for letting us be part of your investigation. There's, there's nothing better you can do with your time than figuring out is Jesus who he said he was. Because man, he, he claimed to be the, the one who we ultimately were made for. And so that's awesome that you are investigating that. But I gotta tell you, what, what we want most of all for you is that just to be reconciled to God, to be reconnected to the author of life, the one who died to save you. That's what we want most of all. And so how, how do you actually do that? What does that look like? Well, essentially, you do the reverse of what humanity originally did. Instead of seizing autonomy for yourself, saying, I'm gonna be the one that runs my life, 
You step down off the throne of your life. You confess that you aren't qualified to be the one who defines and directs your life, that when you do that, it only leads to brokenness. And you confess that Jesus, he is the only one who's qualified to define and direct your life. And so you turn to him and you make him Lord of your life, embracing this life-giving relationship that he's extended to you, the one that he died to give you, that you can find your life in him now. And you can take your weight off of all these things that cannot sustain you or give you life. And you can trust that that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so I want to invite you, you could do that right now. You can make that decision. But I want to tell you too that following Jesus, it's actually not just a one-time decision. I mean, following Jesus is continually getting off the throne of our lives and looking to Jesus for life. And so I want to invite you to be part of this community of people who are committed to helping one another do that together, to helping one another look to Jesus and follow him. And then for the rest of us, um, man, we don't just believe that God wants to change the world out there. He doesn't just want to send missionaries out to the nations out there to change them and transform them. We believe that he wants to do that right here through this church. And man, God wants us to be a part of that. And so that's exactly why next week, or you know, in a couple weeks, we're going out into the community for Love Medina to give of this life that God has given us, to give our time and our energy and our resources to love and to bless people. But man, most of all, our hope is that this life that we're pouring out for others, that it would point people to Jesus, that we could bring them the incredible message of Jesus. And so I invite you guys, register, be a part of this, and be a part of what God is doing in this world. Not just in a weekend, but that our whole entire lives could be lived for the purpose of making Jesus known to the world. Because what the world needs most is him. They need Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, um, God, just thank you. Thank you for who you are. God, and we just confess that every one of us, man, all of us, we've looked for life apart from you, apart from the author of life. And God, every one of us has, has contributed to the brokenness in this world. But Lord, thank you that you did not leave us there. God, that you sent Jesus into this world to die for us, God, to heal that relationship and God, to give us new life. Lord, would you help us as we look to you to be, to be everything for us, God, to be the one that can give us true life, Lord. And God, as we do that, would you help us be a church, be people, who pour our lives out for others, for this world, for one another, God, so we could be part of the solution of ultimately pointing people to you. God, help us in that. We need you for that, Lord. Jesus, we just love you and pray all this in your name. Amen.